0: It's a gloomy, wet February day and we've come to one of North London's most famous thoroughfares. The Holloway Road carries the A1 through the borough of Islington, often packed with cars, buses and lorries as you can hear, and bustling with shoppers. Mind you, today the wipers are on full and the passers-by are rushing for shelter, hunched against the wind. But this road has played a significant role in the life and music of today's Folk on Foot guest. Frank Turner has a very different pedigree from many of our previous guests on Folk on Foot. For one thing, he started out as a punk musician. For another, he was at Eton College at the same time as Prince William. He also has a first class degree in modern history from the London School of Economics. But he is unmistakably an English singer and songwriter, and his confessional, often brutally honest songs observe the turbulence of human relationships as well as wider societal issues. And he's just as much at home playing solo gigs in small venues as he is on arena stages with his band, The Sleeping Souls. Today, he's gonna tell us why the Holloway Road means so much to him.
1: Lovely day, isn't it? <laughs> a glorious British spring day. Is Who's it spring
0: it? yet? I don't know. nearly is, but it's nearly. throwing it down. It is throwing Let's be clear about that. I obviously. mean, we have agreed to walk in North London in February, so yeah. it's our own fault. Slightly bonkers. Fault, we're just outside Archway Station at the yes. top of Holloway Road. Why have you brought us to Holloway Road? My whole life lays on this road, in
1: a funny way. Uh, looking up the hill past Archway Station, my grandmother lived up there, and my dad and his brothers and sisters were raised up there. I was raised just outside Winchester, but as a kid, at the weekends we'd come up here. And my mum always says that even from about the age of two or three, I'd get out of the car in Archway and kind of go, yeah, this is me. I'm um, home here. Yeah, I just it just immediately sort of grabbed me and I think that was London more than this area specifically at the time. But it just, you know, my first ever tube journey was from Archway Station when I was about ten, I reckon. My cousin took me into the West End and that kind of thing. So you know, there's, a, there's an awful lot of stuff around here and we're going to get into lots more of it as we walk down the hill. And there's some musical landmarks down
0: the hill. Many, there. both personal and indeed historical. All right, let's get going then. So let's, it's with... 1.8 miles this road, apparently. Uh,
1: yes, um, first mentioned in 1318 in the Annals of the Bishop of London, there's a cattle driving path from the Midlands down to Smithfields Market. But it's a Holloway. A Holloway, technically speaking, is a path worn below the surface of the land by human or animal footfall. Covered by trees, so this would all have been covered by trees. Yeah, it doesn't uh, look
0: like it now, does it? Was
1: it no, going past Aldi? No, I mean there's there's um, there's lamp posts <laughs> that look like stunted trees.
0: Perhaps. And there is a, there is a park halfway down, isn't there? Isn't the Whittington park uh, there, near there here? There's,
1: there are little bits and bobs. It's funny you should mention Whittington though, because that's the other thing about this area. The Whittington Hospital is just up there, so called because apparently this is where, just up there, there's a statue of a black cat because that's where Dick Whittington, when he was leaving London as a youngster, having had his dreams dashed, was uh, sort of minded to turn around and glance again at London and he saw the streets paved with gold. Right. Um, And that was from just next to Archway Tube Station. That was before they built the KFC. That was before the (laughs) KFC and the estate agents and the organic (laughs) vegan shop that's new. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I have to say, I personally have moved just about half a mile away from here. So Um, you used
0: to live around here, did you?
1: I've lived in about eight places, either on or just off the Holloway Road in my time, one of which was just down there, actually. When Um, did
0: you first come to live in this area? How old were you? Basically, as I
1: say, I sort of got to know the north end of the road, and then, as we will get to, when I discovered the existence of punk rock as a concept in the late 1990s, a lot of the punk shows that I went to would be at the garage, which is the southern terminus of the Holloway Road and that immediately felt quite sort of neat in a way should we say so when I turned 18 I finished my last A level and I went home and I left home 45 minutes later in my mate's car and moved to London and And you just couldn't wait I couldn't wait it was always my plan yeah I mean the thing is first of all my parents and I don't and didn't see eye to eye on political and cultural matters. Right. So you say, with, and I love them very dearly. But also, there's just not much underground punk rock or culture or anarchism or anything like that in rural Is Hampshire. In Liam Stoke. No there's, no, there's not much of that.
0: Um, <laughs> and when and you say your parents and you don't see eye to eye, what sort of music would they be listening my to? My parents
1: listen to classical music and church music. Right. They don't really believe in drum kits um, <laughs> or indeed electrification. So, so how did that music come into your life? Where did you find it? <laughs> A friend of mine's older brother was an Iron Maiden fan and he had an Iron Maiden poster in his bedroom and I was playing at Games Workshop which I was very into, Orcs and Goblins and the like and I thought that it was a Games Workshop poster but it wasn't, it was a band and that fact blew my mind that there could be a band that was cool enough to have a zombie, and then then I got into Nirvana, and then I got into Punk Rock, and it went from there. But, the but
0: Iron Maiden are really the specialist subject, aren't they, because that's what you did on Mastermind. It is
1: what I did on Mastermind, and always said I would since I was a kid. But, but you uh, know
0: everything about them, you scored 20 points, didn't I, you? No, I didn't. Uh, the like, thing is, they
1: asked me a couple of questions about Maiden in like the 2000s, which really threw me, because I'd started learning. They formed Christmas Day 1975, of course, as we all know, <laughs> and uh, I didn't get a full scorecard on Maiden, but I did win. So uh, all was well and I have the trophy at home and I have a tattoo on my leg.
0: So what was it like for a, a lad brought up on church music and classical music suddenly to be injected with Iron Maiden? Remarkable,
1: um, uh, vitalizing, shall we say. You know, I love Maiden's pieces but I think it was more just the energy of rock and roll music in general. That was my musical life for a good sort of 10-15 years until I then discovered more singer-songwriter acoustic kind of music. We'll Dylan. talk more about that in a minute because it, that was a
0: sort of transformation, wasn't it? Yeah. But I'm just interested in how your parents reacted then when you first started <laughs> wanting to play this stuff at home and then wanting to make music of that kind. I'm going to say badly. Um, <laughs> Did they try to stop you?
1: I wouldn't say they tried to stop me. I got a cheap electric guitar for Christmas from an Argos starter pack. My best mate lived next door and he had a drum kit so we played together. But they weren't enthused about the music. I was banned from buying Kerrang! magazine for a time after I bought a coffee home that had a feature on a band called Cannibal Corpse uh, <laughs> which my mother was not super stoked about. I mean, this is one of the things, music to me has always been something I've had to do slightly in opposition. You know, I never really studied music. I didn't get a music degree or anything like that. I can't read music. It's a strange thing because I know it makes me sound like an adolescent but like, in a way, you know, I have friends who got brought up on their parents record collection encouraged every step of the way. And that's just completely foreign to me as an experience. To me, music is a thing. I didn't know anybody who liked the kind of music I liked, you know, one or two exceptions to that. I got very into, and this is pre the internet as well, so I was getting into kind of like mail order catalogues, making friends in record stores, just trying to find somebody who could tell me what any of these terms meant or who these bands were and which ones came first and all that kind of thing.
0: So, so do you take a pride in the
1: fact that you found it for yourself? I mean, I do. I think I'm also now old enough to recognise that that's a pretty meaningless piece of pride. But nevertheless, it was, a like I say, a thing I had to do slightly in opposition.
0: Now, I had to mention your school, because I presume everybody yeah. does. You went to Eton College. It was yes. that a hotbed of the punk movement no. for the uh, time when I, Prince
1: William was there? I passed an exam to get a scholarship, which, in all honesty, I didn't really know what I was doing. But I got in, which is... But the scholars are quite socially distinct, should we say? That's school. slightly a, a group apart. Yeah, because there's no financial prerequisites. Yeah. If you see what I mean. So, yeah. we, so, we're so you don't have to be rich to be. Exactly, to be, and 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 like you know, I, I come from a solidly comfortable middle-class family, but that's nothing compared to most kids that go to it in college. So I was a bit kind of on the outside anyway. And then I sort of went to state school prior to that, and I didn't get along with the social and political milieu. Should we say? That's a very polite way of putting
0: that. You were a bit Um, rebellious at school.
1: Yeah, and so the thing was, like, when I discovered... Because I was into metal first, when I discovered punk, that was hugely liberating for me because it squared a circle, which as a 14, 15-year-old, I was having trouble dealing with. You know, I hated everyone I went to school with, I hated where I went to school, and I was full of this kind of, like, unrequited rage. You know what I mean? And then I heard the Sex Pistols and The Clash and Black Flag, and it was like, oh, okay. There's an outlet. Yes, or, or at least there's somebody else who's as pissed off as I am. <laughs> you know, that's a good feeling. Um, and punk is, punk is as much an ethic and a community and an aesthetic as it is a style of music. And I, regardless of what it is specifically I do with my time now, musically, I, it's still hugely definitional for me as a person. You know, I definitely
0: still, again, in a way that's arguably quite teenage, I still think of myself as a punk. Right. And what does being a punk mean? That you're outside the establishment, that you're challenging?
2: Yeah, sort of
1: independent, making your own way, being driven by energy, not waiting for things to be okayed, just doing the things that you feel are right. And also a fair amount of going to kind of like small venues and standing around while bands play really loud and fast. And that
0: energy has never left your music, has it? uh,
1: Well, hopefully not. (laughs) (laughs) It is a funny thing, I mean, to the extent that I do anything that's unique in my music career now, Part of it, I think, is just because, particularly on my early records, I was trying to sound quite specifically like Neil Young, but I learned to play guitar and sing in punk bands, and I couldn't subtract that from my style. I'd play a song and I'd be like, doesn't it sound like Neil Young? And everyone would go, not really. Um, (laughs) uh, It's going very, very fast. (laughs) Yeah, or at least you're singing really loudly. And there's quite a lot more swear words than Neil Young usually uses.
0: (laughs) Um, So yes, that, I think, is kind of at the core of my musical DNA. And so then, unlike Bob Dylan, you went acoustic, so he went electric. <laughs> <laughs> There's a sort of transformational moment yes. when you're in a punk band yeah. and all of a sudden you, know, you discover the joys of being a singer-songwriter. Sure. Was there a record or a song or a, another artist um, to well, inspire
1: you? it is funny that we should say this at this exact moment in time, because I'm about to tell you a story that took place. On that street corner, right there. Okay, so we're on the corner in. of
0: Tollington Way and Holloway Road. Yes. Outside Nambuka. Outside Nambuka. A legendary name. So, I went to London School of Economics
1: and I had a student house shared with altogether too many people that was just down there and I lived there for a year. And on the day when I moved out and went back and argued with my landlord about getting the deposit back and didn't get it <laughs> because, <laughs> because we trust the joint, I was leaving and walking to go up to Archway Station and as I got here i ran into two guys who i vaguely knew a guy called dave danger and a guy called sensible jay and dave danger used to work in a record shop with a guy who played drums in million dead the punk band i was in at the time and jay i didn't know but the two of them grew up together in braintree in essex and they'd moved to london to dj indie clubs that was their dream and i ran into them right here and i said what are you guys doing here and they said oh well we've just moved in upstairs at this pub and we're taking it over nambuka and i said well that's annoying because i've just moved out of a place that's literally crawling distance and they said well you can still pop by at the time the upstairs rooms at nambuka were sort of only an inch or two above a squat and the downstairs it's a nice big pub it's a classic north london boozer but there wasn't, it was dead all the time and the owner was kind of struggling and wondering what to do and these two mad kids from Essex came in and said, we'll set up a scene. And the thing about day and Day is that they're the two most sociable people in the whole world and they know everybody and they set up these clubs and within a couple of months this place was booming and they started putting on gigs here and indeed Dave formed a band called The Holloways and it was quite indie rock for a time. So we would run a club called Frog on Saturday nights, Club Enemy on Friday nights and quite often it was a very chemically assisted scenes okay. shall we say. So we'd get to a Sunday of any given weekend and everybody was exhausted and hadn't really slept and was really in a strange place emotionally. And Jay had the idea to put on folk nights on Sunday afternoons called. S- well no drums.
2: We were all over <laughs> over all banging beats or whatever.
1: We've been through all of that. So Jay decided to put on a folk night called Sensible Sundays. And it was sort of a cross between an open mic and then a few booked acts at the top but it was very punk in the sense of like anyone could play so i started going to that and jay was playing under the name beans on toast he definitely predates me as an artist he had a little guitar he knew three chords and he sang the truth and he sang the truth about us and there was one sensible sunday where he wrote a song about the weekend we'd had the previous week and the mad stuff we got up to and he sang it on stage, and I was just staggered by the immediacy of that, and that, which I think is a very folk thing. It was like, we did this, a week later there's a song about it, the Ballad of Steve and the Chinese Army. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and it just blew my mind, and it was almost like scales fell from my eyes. Because at the time, Million Dead were an obscurantist left-field punk band trying to be weird in our music, and it was like, oh no, you can just play G, C and D and sing a cool story about a thing that happened. So the simplicity of it. Yeah, and the directness and the immediacy it was so much more engaging to me than trying to write obscurantist songs in 7-8 about Polish communism which is what I was doing at the time (laughs) and uh, and it really sort of captured me so I started just hanging out here and eventually staying here all the time upstairs and and now we could living here yeah I mean I didn't have a room at any point but nor did quite a lot of people Um, you just sort
0: of sofa surfed
1: yeah sofa surfed went to sleep on the rare occasions when I did, on the sofa. But but it was great, and there was a lot of people who were here at Sensible Sundays. I think I was probably the one who took to the building and the scene here the most, but I remember endlessly seeing Marcus Mumford play. Laura Marling, when she was 16, was here, which was always a bit touch and go with the authorities. Jamie T played here all the time.
0: You know, it was a busy old time for that kind of music. Well, shall we go inside? If we, can, can. we can, that would be inside. fantastic. Yeah, it we'll had been to. quite
1: a while since I was inside. Uh, OK, and, and so I, I think it's it.
0: changed a bit because there was a fire here, wasn't there? There was, yeah, which we'll get into, but let's so get
1: let's out go of the club.
0: OK.
2: Everybody's got themselves a plan And everybody thinks they'll be the man Including the gods, the musicians Like the friends to form a band The singer, songwriters The rest of us are DJs Or official club photographers Tonight I'm playing another damn show So I'm going to Take a fucking flight We're going
0: listeners will be pleased to know that I resist the temptation to join in with oh, the chorus, fantastic. which is the traditional
1: thing to it do. Is, it is, and well, and there's a th- funny thing about this, the original version of that song, called The Ballad of Me and My Friends, the original recording of that song was done just down there uh, at about 4am on the night that I got home from a tour of France, because I wrote that song whilst I was doing a weird DIY punk tour in France, and I was missing this place, so I wrote a song for it, and I always had this idea that it would be a solo performance apart from the kind of mass crowd sing along for that last chorus. So I came home and we got into, stuck into a party here and I sort of told everybody about this new song that i would written and Jay got his laptop out and put it down and I taught everybody the part and played it and everybody sang along and I just thought it was going to be wonderful to never record it other than this and it would just be this, you know, sort of field recording almost that was recorded in the room that it was about and all the rest. Unfortunately, on listening back, um, we were all wasted and I played it way too fast and it was just horrendously out of key and all the rest of it. So um, I did actually release that version on a rarities compilation a couple of years ago and it's not very good. Um, but um, it's quite moving to me to play that song in this room. So how to describe the ambience? Well, it's my favorite type of place in the world in that it's a sticky, floored small gig venue with a stage and a PA. And some lights and just enough space for about 200 people to get in here.
0: So it's changed because there was a fire. It was. So
1: 2008, there was a fire here. And essentially, that was the moment when our gang moved on because uh, all the rooms upstairs were kind of destroyed. And there's a lot of fire damage. Um, It's funny, coming into it now, I mean, I haven't been here that much since because it was quite a traumatic moment in my personal and musical life but like traumatic in, the, in
0: well associated with the
1: fire or associated
0: with the
2: fire I mean no one was hurt in
1: the fire but um, you know this had been our base and, and I suppose on some levels I kind of imagined that it would never end and in a funny way looking back now given that there was probably five glory years here I'm actually quite glad that it had a line drawn under it in a way because otherwise it would have petered out and got weird and it was very much a case of like there was a complete turnover at that point They've rebuilt, which I'm very pleased about, and it is still a thriving small music venue in North which London. Which is an
0: extraordinary thing, given the number of small music venues that have been lost. Isn't <coughs> yeah, it? That this definitely. Is still going.
1: And long may it continue, you know. It's funny, the stage has moved a bit. It was more in that corner, and it's now flush against the wall, which is better. Do um, you walk in? You're just like, oh yeah, that's where the station Um <laughs> But it's does a it do your head in a bit coming in and finding it slightly altered? It's, I mean, less now with the passage of time. And you know, I guess on just on a lot of levels, you just have to accept that things change. But there's a part of you that doesn't want them to. <laughs> I've never been back to the house that I grew up in after my parents divorced because I think it would do funny things to me emotionally. And this is obviously not quite the same. No. Uh, but nevertheless, it's, I mean, I, the things I've seen in this room. Good Lord. I mean, in the gigs that I played and that I saw in here, I saw Baby Shamble's first ever gig was in here, and I was manning the sound desk for that. So, uh, and I pl- there was a Nambuka birthday party. Essentially, somebody found out that the building was going to be 100 years old, or possibly like 115 years old, or something. But it was just a rubbish excuse to have a massive party. And we had two nights, Saturday and Sunday, and Holloway's headline Saturday, and I had it on Sunday. And no one left or went to bed at any point between the two nights. It just carried on, and that must on and have been on. so extraordinary wasn't it, it was nuts. And
0: it raises the question for me of just listening to it, whether you thought you were going to be famous when you were doing these things here, whether that was your aim, or whether it was just playing the music for its own sake
1: I, It's an interesting question, and I think the thing is for me is that like it's not that I was actively not interested in success I mean I certainly pursued the avenues that might lead to it. But I think one of the things for me that's sort of important for me personally to say, I'm not sure anybody else really cares about this or should, but there's definitely a sort of idea among some people that I gave up being in hardcore punk bands and started playing this kind of music because I wanted to be successful, which is an opinion that comes from the fact that I have been more successful, wildly more successful than I ever was in a punk band. And it is just important to me to correct the record on that in the sense that, first of all, the idea of somebody from a punk band making a folk record or making folk music which is now a better trod path was considered completely insane in 2005 and I know this because I got laughed out of record label officers and booking agent officers and all the rest of it there was a purity of artistic intent to it I was playing the music that made sense to me that was a way of communicating and telling stories with my friends and I was doing it because that's what I wanted to do and you know I wanted to be successful but I wouldn't have changed what I
0: was doing to make that more likely and didn't I should say And were there times when you thought it was never going to happen? Yeah, well... So that's what the song seems to suggest, is that we're we're, we're not going anywhere, but...
1: (laughs) Well, there there is now, and this is going to lead us beautifully into the second song that I wanted to play here. It's like... I'm an old pro. (laughs) So basically, I, I wrote that song, and I sort of talked about it in interviews a bit about how, you know, it's this wonderful... There's that kind of like the beautiful and the damned, the doomed youth kind of aesthetic and about this idea that we were all in our mid-twenties and we were all wasted all the time and we could be because we were in our mid-twenties. So you're we invincible, having a lovely time. And I sort of wanted to, I want to be a realist in life and I was sort of, you know, a pessimist is occasionally pleasantly surprised and all this kind of thing. So I, I would talk both in my songwriting and in my interviews about the fact that I didn't think this was going to last forever. And Jay, Beans on Toast, who was running this joint, took me aside once and took me to task on this. And he said, mate, I'm a club promoter and a musician and that's me, and I'm not doing this for five years before this isn't a holiday from reality for me, this is my life. And I said, well, I mean, I'd like that to be true for me too, but who knows? And he said, well, then try. And I'm pleased to say that uh, Jay just sold out his largest London headline show to date and is still on tour and is still releasing records and I'm doing what I do. And so he was right and I was wrong. But um, my opinion about the spirit of Nambuka, has this phrase for you? Started to shift towards a slightly more optimistic and positive over time. So that previous song was from my first record, Sleepers for the Week, which I think the meaning of that title is becoming more clear as we as we talk. <laughs> the conversation
0: goes on. Yes. Yeah. Um,
1: uh, but my second album, the opening track of my second album, is a song called I Knew Proof Rock Before He Got Famous, and indeed we shot. A absolutely awful music video for it in this room. Terrible, terrible nonsense. Uh, It's a reference
0: uh, to T.S. Eliot. It is
1: a reference to T.S. Eliot, and and it's a joke. It's an obscure literary joke that has nothing to do with the lyrics of the rest of the song. The love song of J.F.R. Proofrock, which is one of my favourite poems, is this poem about greatness passing you by. So to call the song I knew Proofrock before he was famous was a joke. It was also, the fact is, after a time this place started getting, as they say in the industry, in the sense that the Holloways got signed, Jamie T got signed, Laura Marlin got signed. I actually didn't really at that point in time. I was working with Extra Mile, as I still do to this day. And my career was very much more kind of slow and steady wins the race rather than like, here is £100,000 from a record label. Never had that. So there was definitely a sense that people were starting to kind of achieve escape velocity from this place. And what came along with that was hangers-on. So people started coming here who we didn't really know or recognize. And I don't want to sound elitist at this point, but like there were definitely people who were here because they thought they might see a famous band rather than because they loved music, which was slightly trying. I mean, it's one of the wages of success in a way. So I wrote the song that was kind of all about it's a celebration of this place and love for it, and indeed the second verse is a list, pretty much of the entire bar staff of people who were working here in roughly 2007. But it's it's a celebration of the kind of the purity of the ideal, should we say, that this place was originally based on.
0: And there's some scathing comments about
1: some of the people who turned up. Um, not overly scathing, <laughs> but there's a, there's there's a there's a there's a nod or two in in there to that kind of approach. Let's begin at the beginning. We're
2: lovers and we're losers.
1: We're heroes and
2: we're pioneers and we're beggars and we're choosers. We're skirting around the edges of the ideal demographic. We're almost on the guest list, but we're always stuck in traffic.
1: We've watched our closest associates up and play their parts. They're chatting up
2: the id girls and they're tearing up the charts, while we were paying with coppers to turn around and at the bar. The sea team were the almost famous old friends of the stars. Now, Justin is the last of the great romantic poets, and he's the only one among us who is ever gonna make it We planned a revolution from a cheap Southampton Bistro I don't remember details but there were English boys with banjos Jay is us and he's standing on a wooden chair And he sings songs, he slays dragons, and he's losing all his hair And Adam is the resurrected spirit of grand Parsons Implanted instead of rhinestones South London And no one's really clear about Tommy's job description It's pretty clear he's vital To the whole damn operation The Dave Danger smiles The stranger's tree's the safest girl I know And so and half will scamper out to victory In the city we call home But we won't change our ways to be famous and they're wondering why they do this and I know I'm not the one who is habitually so optimistic I'm the one who's got the microphone here so just remember this yeah well life it's about love last minutes and lost evenings about fire in our bellies and about furtive little feelings and the aching amplitudes that set our needles on a flickering. and they help us with remembering that the only thing let left to do is live Yeah, the only thing that's left to do is live Thoughts are all of the loving and the losing All the heroes and the pioneers The only thing that's left to do Is get another round in at the bar
1: There it is. That was fantastic, and I uh, must admit, it's you've, quite moving. You've all came back
0: to you. You're feeling quite so, emotional. A little bit,
1: yeah. I mean, it, and it's funny. Like, so of uh, the people mentioned in the song, Justin is now the singer in the Vaccines, who are doing very well. So my line about him being the one who's going to make it, not far off the mark. Uh, although the line about banjos is definitely a rip on Mumford. Mumford, and they, of course, they did rather yeah. well. <laughs> uh, but even though there's a line in there about it, girls, which um, was actually, funnily enough, a sort of a nod to the sadly no longer with us Caroline Flack, who used to hang out here as well, and that's I knew her. From here, she was part of this scene. And uh, and she loved that song and um, was tickled by it. The rain has stopped and we're back on the Holloway Road, walking south, walking away from Nambuka. Of course, Nambuka's not the only bit of music history on this road. It's not just about me prattling on about my past, but also further down we're going to walk past where Joe Meek, the famous producer, invented modern recording techniques, or most of them and Johnny Rotten, John Lydon from the Pistols lived around here as well, so um, there's, there's lots going on. So it's a kind here. of musical road. Yeah, definitely. Um, but it's also, I, I always feel that the Holloway Road is a transitory place. It's a thoroughfare, you know, it's not like Camden or Hampstead or these places that are sort of destinations. It's a route between one place and another. But I kind of like that because it means that it's constantly flowing and constantly changing. And one of the things I always think about that living in London in particular, has taught me is to embrace change conceptually. You know, people who bang on about, well, London's not like it was when I was young. The answer to that is, well, that's the point. You know, it's supposed to change visibly in your lifetime.
0: And you have to embrace that. And I think that's quite a good life lesson. And you're obviously fascinated by the history of The Holloway Road. Is history really important to you still? You did a degree in it. Yeah. Is it st- something you yeah, still care about?
1: I Definitely. I mean, I read history incessantly. And in fact, the last album that I did, was a history album. It's called No Man's Land, and it was a collection of history songs, in fact, that I put out last year. They were all about women, weren't they? They were, which was not my original intention. Uh, My original intention was to just write history songs. And a big part of the reason for that was that I've always written autobiographically. And after seven albums of autobiography, as much as I find
0: myself deeply engaging and interesting, I thought it might be interesting to try writing about something else. And um, when you decided that they should all be about women, some people thought, well, you're mansplaining now. You're, yeah. you're just, why does it take you to tell the stories of, of these unrecognized women?
1: Well, so as I said, I mean, one of the things was that the, the, the theme was emergent, should we say. I started trying to tell stories that I felt were undertold, And then after about five songs in, I realized they're all about women. And that was a road I chose to follow. In terms of the criticism that I'm a man telling these stories, which I expected, of course, I would flip the question on its head in a way I was always going to make an eighth album, I'm going to make a ninth one, and it just struck me that of all of the things I could use my platform and my existing audience to discuss, that was more interesting than writing a record about men from history, or indeed another 13 songs about my car crash of a love life, although I did recently get married.
0: Yes, so well we'll come on to that in a minute, so but less of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about some of the women that you wrote about, were, were there any women from London for example? There,
1: there were, um, not from Holloway, alas, I did try and get some Holloway women in, but I didn't didn't pan out, but um, I wrote a song about uh, Ginny Bingham, a woman who owned a bar in Camden in the 1600s called Old Mother Redcap. And she had a number of husbands who met Sticky Ends, but she was accused of being a witch by locals and indeed tried for witchcraft, unsuccessfully. And her bar survives on the spot to this day. There is the World's End, which is in that place. But she ran a bar that was, the record says it was for sort of outcasts and outlaws and misfits. And given what Camden is now, and certainly what it represents to me, it seems like a wonderful bit of history to celebrate. And again, not that many people seem to know about it. So I wanted to tell that story. And William Blake's wife? Yes, Catherine Blake, who was very important in the world of William Blake, in the sense that she kept him sane and clothed quite a lot of the time. He had a habit of getting naked in public. Um, But also uh, after he died, she essentially catalogued and protected his work. And it's unlikely that the pre-Raphaelites would have been able to engage with it, experience it and understand it in the way that they did if it hadn't been for her efforts. So she is deserving of a a tip of the hat
0: of art history, in my opinion. And then the last track on the album is about your mum, Yes, isn't it? You know, why did you decide to include her in the list? Well, my mum, I had the song. And it's a a kind of apology song, is it? I I would say that it's an acknowledgement song. Essentially,
1: my mother went through a fair amount of shit when I was young in a way that I didn't really fully appreciate at the time, because I was a child. But my mother suffered a fair amount of emotional abuse from my father. And my mother not only withstood that, but protected her children from it as well. And you have that moment where as an adult you start understanding your parents as people, and indeed sort of, you know, looking back over the things you can remember with that new insight. And I sort of realised that my mum had been through a lot and had done a lot for us, and that was deserving of acknowledgement.
2: out of bed every morning the same but there's mouths to be fed with the money she gets from a man who is dead to himself and dead to everyone else my sisters and I were always too young to remember the line about holding your tongue while the grown folks are talking the silence began long ago for Rosemary Jane. Sweet Rosemary Jane. It's Mothering Sunday, and the headlines should say that we haven't forgotten the remarkable way that you took all that pain on your shoulders and put it away, Rosemary Jane. When I think of the things You had to endure We were young, we were callous Had strong and unsure You guided us gently To the right where Whether loved or ignored Rosemary Jane I know I gave you A grey hair every time I messed up Peach, want a silver Reminder that my mistakes Add up through every One of my own. Every slip you never gave up Sweet Rosemary James It's Mothering Sunday And the headline should say That we haven't forgotten The remarkable way That you took all that pain On your shoulders And put it away Rosemary Jane sweet Rosemary Jane Rosemary Jane.
0: And did you in a way want to say sorry for your own behaviour when you were younger? A
1: little bit of that in there as well. I mean I think like any teenager, I was a bit of a handful from time to time, and that certainly probably didn't help what the, the other things my mum was dealing with at the time. But uh, we've made our peace now. She's not a fan of the tattoos. Right, and, and what does she say about the tattoos? Well, when I, she saw my first one, which was a good five years after I got it, she cried and told me that she'd spent nine months making that skin, so, uh, not a fan, she, I threw her for a loop by getting her initials tattooed on my wrist a few years ago, but we are, funnily enough, standing pretty much outside, I think it's just over
0: there, there used to be a tattoo shop there, where I got, uh, I whoa, so Laurie just hit a uh, bollard, yeah, man, uh, just it's... in front of us, not brilliant driving. So the tattoo shop was there where you got them done, Yes. and is... did she exert a price? <laughs> I wonder... Um, tattoos there, was, there
1: was one occasion, yes, where um, I got the backs of my hands tattooed, which is what's known in the tattoo world as a job killer. Because you can't get a certain, certain kind certain certain kinds of jobs, yeah. Right. And she was not stoked about that. So my mother helps out with a local village school in rural Hampshire, where she still lives. And they have an annual kind of school fate, school one-day festival, whatever you want to call it. And she'd been asking me to play for years, and I'd been fobbing her off. And then I got my hands tattooed, and she said that I could either play... The school fate, or I could wear gloves for the rest of my life, whenever I came home. So I agreed to play it, but I hadn't realised it was on the same weekend
0: as Glastonbury. (laughs) Right, so 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 did you have to play Glastonbury and then go to the school fate? Yeah, I
1: played my, I think, third and final show of that year's Glastonbury at about 2pm, and then got in a car and drove to Hampshire and played a gig in a school fate that night. Which was the best gig? (laughs) That <laughs> depends on who's asking the question. <laughs> I mean, I think it probably I was less tired for the Glastonbury show, should we say. But then my, my mum introduced me at the school faith, which is
0: something. That's a moment, I, isn't it? Yeah, it's...
1: definitely. It was good. Let's keep moving. Let's keep going. What's this road here? To- this, is, this is Tollington Road. We were on Tollington Way earlier. Tollington, incidentally, was the name of the central area of Holloway because it was where the toll was on the cattle roving path for a long time. So there was a separate village there. But I lived here on Tollington Road. It was the first kind of adult place that I lived. It was about nine years of sofa surfing essentially. I didn't have my own place. Part of the reason I toured so hard in my early days because I would exhaust people's patience socially. Throw you out of the house. Yeah (laughs) even at Nambuka there was only a certain amount of time you could sleep in the hallway without paying rent. But then in 2012 after we'd done the Olympics of all things I decided that maybe I could be somebody who actually lives somewhere.
0: So you've done the Olympic opening ceremony? Yes, and I'd headlined <laughs> an arena show and I th- and thought... And you didn't have a place of your own? At that point, no. no. Right. But so was... immediately afterwards you decided you better get
1: one? Well I figured that, you know, that was probably permissible at this point. So <laughs> me and Dave Danger, who had moved on after the fire at Namuka, got a place together here on Tollington uh, on, on Road uh, in 2012. We lived there together for about five years. How many rooms did it have? Two. Right. One, one for David. well three <laughs> if you include the kitchen.
0: Well then we've got to the upmarket end now because we're going past the little Waitrose, <laughs> uh, so obviously things are going up in the world and we're heading towards Highbury Corner.
1: Well yeah we are, so Highbury, Highbury Corner is just here. Are they still digging it up? A friend of mine pointed out that the recent roadworks on the Highbury corner have taken longer than it took Alexander to reach India. Um, <laughs> where we're standing right now, I have a story about this bit of pavement. This bit? So, when I was a teenager, I initially got into metal, then I got into punk rock. And the type of music that's known to the world as hardcore, as in hardcore punk, is sort of a mix of metal and punk. And I had triangulated this fact and realised that hardcore might be cool. I hadn't heard me because this again pre the internet, pre Spotify, pre anything really. So I didn't really know what any hardcore bands were. So what sort of age were you now? You? Uh, 16, 15 or 16. In fact I was 15, because uh, it was the 8th
0: of December 1997. I happen to remember. Um, exactly. Yeah. Are you a bit like that with this? A little because bit, yeah. You count all the numbers, all the shows I I you do, not I do Don't count do my show numbers, yes. Yeah.
1: But yes, I've been looking in the listings in, again, probably Kerrang! magazine. And there was Agnostic Front, who are a New York hardcore band, were playing here with a bunch of other New York hardcore bands. We should and say this is the garage. This is the garage, yes. Yeah. And I called a couple of friends of mine, and we decided to go. And we walked out of Hibernism to Tube Session, which is just over there. And we crossed the road, and we got here way early, as you do when you're a kid, before Doors, and sort of joined the front of the queue, which would have been right here. And then I had this wonderful, magical moment that I will never forget, Of learning of the existence of an underground subculture because one by one people just started appearing out of the dark it was December it was dark and it was cold and just a guy wearing a sick of it all t-shirt came and stood behind us and then a couple of more people came out wearing other hardcore shirts and you know I wasn't even aware of the sort of hardcore fashion thing at the time which was a mixture between kind of metal and punk and sportswear and a lot of people with baseball caps and you know a lot of kind of wallet chains this was the 90s of course A lot of piercings and tattoos and funny hair and all the rest of it and we felt really out of place because we weren't wearing any of those things but it was like something coalesced out of nothing into something and then the doors opened and we went in and we saw our first ever Harcourt show.
0: I think we can go in ourselves. I would love to do that. I I
1: know this room so incredibly well.
0: Very appropriately it's painted black. It is, yes. Well this
1: is a building that has undergone a number of renovations in my time and if we were incredibly bored and indeed boring I could wax lyrical about the different eras of men's toilets in there and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, uh, it's safe to say it's currently in better shape than it has been. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hiya. Coming through these hallowed doors. This place is just in such better shape than it has been over the years. It still has its slightly curved ceiling, which makes it a difficult room to mix sound in. During the... Late 90s and early 2000s, this was the place to play for a certain size of punk band. And I came here, I mean, three nights a week, every week, for a good decade. So I, was, and I saw everybody. I saw Rancid, I saw Descendants, I saw Nose for a Name, I saw Lagrang, and I saw like No Effects. Like everybody played here. And indeed, the other day, somebody dug up some footage on the internet of a band called Knuckle Dust, who were the UK hardcore band at the time of them headlining Evil Fest here, uh, Evil Fest 99. And uh, I'm just bang front and centre
0: at the front row. And so you're going to sit on the stool at the bar. Yes. And sing a song which will conjure up. Yeah. yeah. Something in that a very punk. No, well, well you'll see, you'll see. <laughs> I mean, it's an
1: acoustic guitar, which would have surprised me. If you could go back to me, age 16, in this room and tell me that I'd sit at the bar and play a song on an acoustic guitar, I might be a little perplexed. Uh, but it's a song that I wrote that was on my first album called Back in the Day, which is a sort of hymn, a tribute to hardcore shows in the 90s at a place like this. When was... <laughs>
2: A skinny lad on holiday by the sea. I met a girl in a ranted shirt and a tape she gave to me. With a black, black class four years in the minor thread discography. And punk rock saved my life. Going down the garage back in 1998. Hanging out with household name and staying out too late. This angry adolescent found an outlet for his hate. And punk rock saved my life. It wasn't perfect and we knew it all along We just are fucking idiots and goldbacks all wrong But everyone must needs be an extremist when they're young Fucking with your parents makes you grow up big and strong Folding zines and record sleeves while sitting round at home Flicking through the catalogues and distros at the shows Circle pits and sing-alongs, come on, let's fucking go And palm crocs same mine Life. The little dream is over. It was never gonna last. Everybody moved on, and it's all in the past. But when I was just 16, I pinned my colors to the mast. rocks and the ink that's in my skin, and the attitude in every song I sing. We didn't change the world. We didn't win. We probably didn't even save my life. is true. But I bet we had.
0: You may be playing an acoustic guitar, but it sounds like you're giving it such welly. Do you wear out acoustic guitars? Uh,
1: I I do. I'm I'm getting better at playing them gentler as I get older. I I used to break a lot of strings at live shows, but I've I've improved my technique. Now, you mentioned to me
0: that you got married last year to Jessica. Congratulations. Mm. Thank you. I just wonder if that means that you can't write any more songs because, you know, you know b- before I'm used to listening to your songs and there are some pretty horrendous breakups and some you know, really sad, are. depressing, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, r- difficult relationships and all of that. It's true. I mean, the thing
1: that I would say in response to that, to the people who say, well, now you're married, you can't, Write any more, you know, songs, or you won't have anything to write about. And the answer to which is, like, you've not been married, have you? <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I will write different types of songs. I'm unlikely to write the kind of lamented the single man, but I've done that so many times and I still sing those songs in my set much to my wife's irritation um, <laughs> she gets it, she understands but but you know, uh, one of my favourite writers is Loudon Wainwright and part of the reason I love that is because I always felt like he had a much more grown up attitude towards writing lyrics so much popular music is focused on the events and feelings of people aged between 16 and 25 and there are solid marketing reasons for doing that but I'm not sure that I want marketing to play much of a role in my choice of song <laughs> subjects Well and Loudon
0: Wainwright had his own share of marital problems didn't he certainly
1: he did but you know it, problems it, it, with his children yeah yeah but and and uh, you know he he has written so excoriatingly honestly but he writes about divorce and fatherhood and indeed nowadays writes about back problems getting older and all that kind of thing and i just think that that's so refreshing to me rather than writing about another like i saw you in the high school cafeteria queue and my heart skipped a beat
0: so you told us earlier about the flat
1: on time used to road. live in. Yeah. There's a song about that. There is. There's a, a song about a relationship that didn't work out. I think we were dating and I thought that we were in a relationship is perhaps the way of putting it. It's very modern use of, of terminology there. But essentially, I, I thought things were rather further along than they actually were and there was a sort of slightly sad moment of realisation in the middle of all of that and I'm, I'm pleased and adult enough to say that we've made our peace with each other these days and our friends and all the rest uh, and it wasn't meant to be and here I am a married man not to this person I should say and, and um, it has
0: this wonderful image of Mittens not. Yeah, m-
1: mittens not fitting like gloves, and uh, which is a, just something that popped into my head one day. But that's the thing; it's perfectly possible as an adult who is dating or however you want to put it to find people where you get along okay, and it's not quite true love. And I guess that's what the song's about.
2: Wandering lonely through the snow streets of New York, I stumble. sold postcards by the yard. I bought a mile and shipped them home so I could read ten thousand ten-word tragedies. The lives these people lead to remind myself the things I need. I. Wrote you love songs, but never fell in love. We used to fit like mittens, but never like love. You left me feeling like we'd never really been in love, huddled. Homebound in my place in Holloway. songs.
0: <laughs> I'm thinking your pain. I have to say, listeners, Hearing Frank Turner sing like that right up close does make your hair stand <laughs> on end. <It's
1: laughs> well, absolutely wonderful. That goes back to where we started about it learning does. to sing in punk <laughs>
0: bands and, and the, the best indeed place in this to, room. to yeah. do it in the garage.
1: Yeah. Funnily enough, the acoustics
0: are very nice in here for an acoustic set, uh, yeah. which is
1: not a thing I think has ever happened in the garage. <laughs> so you don't
0: normally <laughs> sing in here when it's empty, do you? Well, that's very true. Yeah. <laughs> Frank, it's been an absolute joy to walk down the Holloway Road with you thank and you. to hear your songs and your stories. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me.
1: And I, I honestly, it's, it's been wonderful and sitting in in Nambuka again for the first well for the second time since the fire was really quite something for me so thank you for allowing me
0: to do that. Frank Turner on the Holloway Road. Well, I do hope you're enjoying season 5 of Folk on Foot. Don't forget we're entirely dependent on donations from our listeners to keep Folk on Foot going. So if you'd like to make a small monthly contribution and get some great rewards, why not sign up to become a patron? All you have to do is go to folkonfoot.com and click on the support us button. And there are more than 30 brilliant episodes of Folk on Foot for you to explore with top artists walking in the landscapes that have inspired them all over the UK. So do have a listen.